0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. A big thank you to all the new listeners that have joined during the month of August as well as a thank you to my original listeners and everybody in between. It's great to log in each morning and see the new downloads in North America and across the world. It's an amazing experience to know so many people are enjoying the podcast and listening to some interesting true crime. Please keep spreading the word about the podcast any social media review, share, or just telling a friend or coworker to check out the show helps. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is Productions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at TrueBlueCrimeProductions.com, and any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand on the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And after CrimeCon, I'll be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. Also, check out the website. I know that Stitcher is basically going away at the end of August here. So if you're listening to this episode and you're listening to it on Stitcher, there are a lot of other great alternatives for listening to the podcast. If you go to the website, I've got links to all the different podcast apps that will be available even after stitcher goes away so if you're looking for a a different platform check out some of those links see if you like the format uh, and uh, that way you can keep listening to the show even after stitcher goes away for no cost please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on thanks so much without any further ado let's dive into this episode of true blue crime the first recorded armed bank robbery in America occurred in 1863 when a postmaster named Edward Green walked into the First National Bank in Malden, Massachusetts and shot a 17-year-old employee before taking $5,000 in cash, the equivalent of roughly 180000 in today's money. There had been burglaries of banks before this date, but the big difference between a burglary and a robbery is the presence of victims and the use or threat of use of force to gain compliance. Soon, armed robberies were occurring all over the United States. In 1866, members of the James Younger Gang, a group of former Confederate soldiers, robbed a bank in Liberty, Missouri, and made off with $60,000, the equivalent of $2.2 million today. Word of this massive haul spread, and soon outlaw gangs across the country were robbing banks, stagecoaches, trains, and anything else that contained large sums of money to get rich usually die soon after. In 1909, criminals began using motorized vehicles to aid in their bank robbing endeavors. This strategy would be employed by many well-known outlaws in the early part of the 20th century, such as John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, and Pretty Boy Floyd. As the techniques, weapons, and tools used by the bank robbers advanced, bank security tried to keep up. Time-locked vaults, bullet-resistant teller protection, and security cameras were added to banks. The target of the robbers, usually cash, was sometimes loaded with marked bills, exploding die packs, and eventually GPS tracking devices. But criminals are always willing to try something new. By 2003, almost every approach for a bank robbery had been tried by criminals. The level of force could range from a simple note handed to a teller threatening harm if they don't give them cash, to large bank takeovers involving multiple suspects using high powered rifles in some cases explosives, to gain access to the bank vault and large sums of cash. The investigation into a bank robbery in 2003 would reveal a complicated plan that is still open to debate today. This is a strange and tragic case of the pizza delivery bank job. The man at the center of this story is Brian Wells. Brian was born on November 15, 1956, in Warren, Pennsylvania. The 46-year-old male would die on August 28, 2003, after a committing a bank robbery, but the story behind the robbery is a tangled web of suspects, motives, and theories. The best way to tell the story is to start with the robbery and then dive into the investigation and its findings. On August 28, 2003, at 2.30 p.m., Brian walked into a PNC bank at Summit Town Center on Peach Street in Erie, Pennsylvania. He was carrying an odd-looking cane, that was actually a homemade shotgun, or more accurately, a pipe gun, and had a metal device strapped around his neck. The device was hidden underneath Brian's shirt, giving it the appearance of a metal neck brace, like the type someone would wear after a neck fracture. Brian approached a bank teller and handed her a note that stated he was robbing the bank, that he had a bomb around his neck, and the bomb would go off in 15 minutes unless he was handed $250,000 in cash. The vault that contained the cash was on a time release, so that amount of cash was not accessible within the timeline, and the teller was only able to secure $8,702 that she put into a bag and handed to Brian. Brian exited the bank around 2.38 just as a witness called 911 to report that a man was robbing the bank and the suspect had a bomb or something around his neck. The witness would later tell police that when brian walked into the bank he waited in line until the teller was available and was sucking on a lollipop as he approached the teller the witness also described brian walking out of the bank swinging his cane in the bag of money like quote charlie chaplin end quote around 2 the first officers arrived on scene and located brian standing outside his car Perplexed by this, the officers tactically approached Brian, took him into custody, and then realizing the device really did look like a bomb, they left him handcuffed by his car, sitting on the ground as they retreated to what they thought was a safe distance. What had started as a bank robbery had now turned into a possible live bomb scenario. The officers began yelling questions at Brian to try and figure out exactly what was going on. Brian yelled back that he had been taken hostage by three black males who put a bomb around his neck, gave him the makeshift cane shotgun, and told him he needed to rob the bank and complete other tasks or they would detonate the bomb. As the seriousness of the situation set in, more officers began to arrive and they were given the task of clearing the area of anyone else, in case the bomb did in fact detonate. At 3.04, 11 minutes after the first officers arrived, a bomb squad was notified to respond to the scene. It had now been over 30 minutes since Brian had walked into the bank and warned people the bomb would explode. While awaiting the arrival of the bomb squad, he warned officers that there wasn't much time left and he was afraid the bomb would detonate. At 3.18pm, the device started beeping for about 10 seconds before it exploded, creating a 6-inch hole in Brian's chest and killing him almost instantly. The bomb squad arrived 3 minutes after the blast, and their arrival had been delayed by traffic congestion in the area, caused by the time of day in the evacuation area. The total time from the request of the bomb squad to their arrival was 17 minutes, considered an extremely fast response, but still not fast enough to prevent the explosion. The time from the first 911 call to the explosion was 40 minutes, and in that time local media had responded to the scene and were filming live when the explosion occurred. Due to technical difficulties, the moment of the explosion was not aired live, but it was captured by the video recording system, and those recordings were later used by investigators as evidence. Unfortunately, some of the footage of the moment of the explosion was leaked to a local radio station, which aired the footage online before it was taken down. But before it was taken down, it was downloaded by many other sources, making it impossible to prevent further dissemination. With Brian deceased, investigators need to secure as much evidence as possible to determine the full scope of the crime and what they were dealing with. They soon learned the situation was a lot more complex than anyone could have realized. So I know we've talked about bank robberies before. We talked about the North Hollywood shootout bank robbery. I'm trying to think if we had covered any others. None are coming to mind, but... Th- When police respond to any type of robbery, first off, they're not going to expect that the suspects are still there. Uh, At least in the case of the North Hollywood shootout, it was actually police officers that witnessed the robbery going on uh, as as the two walked into the bank. So that's why police were on scene so quickly and, and basically set up to try to capture the guys when they came outside. And then that went downhill real quick. But in this case there's this delay this built-in where the first call isn't even made until Brian's leaving the bank and so in most cases by the time that call gets to the dispatch the time the dispatch sends it over to the radio dispatcher the radio dispatcher sends it out to officers and then responding officers in the area actually respond to the bank because I said, I think it's about it's roughly 15 minutes until the first officers arrive on scene so in most cases officers are just expecting to show up go into the bank take information from the witnesses and you try to develop a suspect description to send out see if anybody saw a vehicle that the the suspect got into get security footage all that kind of stuff it's just a typical post bank robbery response however there's going to be some circumstances that leave brian in the area so now officers come across this guy that robbed this bank and to add more confusion to it he's got what looks like a bomb strapped around his neck and so they take him into custody they put him in handcuffs the cane was actually in the car at the time so he's away from this weapon he's handcuffed and he's sitting kind of against his car and officers are some distance away and they're trying to get information because they're not expecting what they find here they're they're expecting a guy who robs a bank hands a note over saying he's got a bomb or a gun or whatever he's threatening the tellers with he gets his cash and he leaves so the fact that he's there is already confusing Then you've got this guy with a bomb around his neck and he's saying he's not the one responsible for this this plan. He can't take the bomb off. And as time starts to run out, Brian gets more and more desperate and he's yelling to these officers about the fact he delivered this pizza and that the guy's forced him to put this collar on at gunpoint and he thinks the bomb's going to go off and He's trying to have the cops call his the pizza place that he works for to confirm his story. And he just he's getting more and more desperate as time goes by. And the, the cops did the right thing by calling in the bomb squad because your typical police officer is not going to know anything about these bombs. And this device was actually pretty complicated. It looked like a large, basically a large handcuff, but it went around the neck. So it was locked in place around... His neck, and then the bomb itself had like a plastic well, eventually, it's determined to be a toy cell phone, but like a decoy cell phone with wires. It's got timers on it, and it's got the pipe bomb explosives. So, definitely appears to be the real deal. And officers aren't not going to risk their lives trying to dismantle a bomb when they have no idea what they're doing. That's what the bomb squad is for and it just so happens that there just was not enough time on this countdown in order for the bomb squad to get there in time to uh, remove this device now there are some arguments that maybe the bomb squad should have been called a little bit earlier because officers arrive at 2:53 and then the bomb squad is requested at 304 which is 11 minutes later you kind of would think maybe in the first Three, four or five minutes you take this guy into custody that you're realize there's a bomb you're immediately getting on the radio but but again this is what we call these rapidly evolving situations and your first priority is the safety of yourself and your fellow officers and the and the, and the public you've got to secure the area secure the suspect figure out what you got going on and and so I said in reality, both the time that it took to get the bomb squad and their response wasn't unreasonable Uh, it just there just wasn't enough time and so this bomb is going to go off it's going to produce this fist size hole in brian's chest and killing him almost immediately and so all the officers have at this point is that they had a bank robbery that the suspect for some reason is still in the area and he's now dead, and can't tell him anything other than what he said, which was what three blackmails made him wear this bomb and made him rob this bank. So officers are going to search Brian's car, and they're just going to discover these nine pages of handwritten instructions that were addressed to Brian, calling him the bomb hostage. The instructions served as a form of scavenger hunt. They promised. Brian that if he completed the instructions, he would find keys that would be placed into the bomb to delay its explosion and upon completing the quest, a final key would defuse and unlock the bomb. The instructions warned Brian that he would be watched by his handlers at all times and any deviations from the plans or attempt to notify law enforcement would result in immediate remote detonation of the bomb. The final line scrawled at the bottom of the instructions was the phrase, act now, think later or you will die. The instructions included everything from a map for Brian to follow, to what to do if police did become involved, to alternate plans if he couldn't raise the full $250,000. Investigators realized they had different avenues of investigation based on the possible scenarios. So we'll go back to these letters. Uh, You can find them online. They're rather interesting to read. Somebody clearly put a lot of time and thought into this entire plan. Uh, These these letters basically spell out every possible scenario if police are involved a and b will happen if something you know if you can't get enough money a and b will happen basically spells it all out and brian's supposed to follow basically the scavenger hunt and go from clue to clue and supposedly at each clue is going to be this key that he can insert into the bomb device to buy himself more time so at this point officers really don't know what they have they've never seen anything like this before and in fact the fbi is going to get involved because they do with bank robberies and they're eventually going to list this as a major case for the fbi and there's only at this time there's only about 203 major cases But that's over the many, many, many decades that the FBI has been around and all the major cases they've worked, including um, things like 9-11, different uh, terrorist bombings, Oklahoma City bombings, that kind of stuff. Those are what they consider their major cases. And this actually lands on their list of major cases just because of the complexity of it and the thought that went into this entire plan and then the amount of investigation it's going to take to get to the bottom of the plan here and so investigators once they have these written instructions they've got the bomb and unfortunately they couldn't even remove the bomb that the bomb caller the bomb had gone off uh, so, it was no longer a live bomb, but they couldn't even remove the bomb collar couldn't figure out the mechanism to make it work without and this gonna be morbid but decapitating Brian uh during the autopsy so they could get this device off and and figure out how it was made and how it was supposed to function and that kind of stuff so again, they've, they've the investigators have to look at this and they're gonna they're gonna mm, make theories based off the evidence and then rule out those theories as plausible or not plausible and the first theory is that brian worked alone and that he created the scavenger hunt and the bomb plan to use as a defense if he got caught robbing the bank or after leaving the bank and this theory would rather quickly be considered unlikely as the use of the device and his actions did not fit the model of a bank robber acting alone he also stayed in the area for 15 minutes after robbing the bank and no made no effort to remove the collar on his own after the bank robbery was complete. The same result could have been achieved with a much easier to remove bomb vest and that would have allowed him to rob the bank and claim to be an unwilling participant, but also he could have removed the vest himself after the robbery if he had been able to make a clean getaway. So what investigators have to look at, this is the, you've seen the movie Tommy Boy, most people have. This is the guy attaching road flares to a vest, running some wires between them and making it look like he's got a bunch of sticks of dynamite and walking into a bank and saying if he doesn't get money, he's going to you know blow the bank up or blow himself up or whatever it's going to be. It's When you have the bank robbery, you just need a suspect, some either actual force or threat of force, In order to gain compliance and the the gaining compliance part is then getting the money so if he's acting alone he can walk into the bank wearing a bomb vest or carrying a briefcase that's a bomb or however he wants to do it and threaten to blow up the bank if he doesn't get his money and then leave and then whether or not it's a real bomb he doesn't have to be quote-unquote attached to it in such a way that he can't remove the device and eventually dies because had he had the means to remove the device he likely would have unless he was you know suicidal he just and that's not how he was acting so basically all of his behaviors during and after the bank robbery are going to make this scenario much less likely And he was not found in possession of any keys or devices to disarm or remove the bomb collar so once the collar was on and locked it required somebody else with the correct key or combination to diffuse and remove the collar and so this is not exactly a a smart end game if you're working alone so again this device requires another person and it's so complicated that the cops can't even figure out how to get it off of him after uh, he's killed They have to decapitate him to get this device off of him. So if if you're working alone and you somehow put this collar on yourself and have no way to get it off before the bomb explodes again, unless you're suicidal, this working alone, working as a lone wolf uh, theory makes no sense. So that leaves investigators with three other plausible theories. The first was that Brian was a willing participant in a larger group of suspects that had conspired together to create this bomb hostage ruse. His inability to get away from police either interrupted the plan and no fail safe was built into the plan in order for him to avoid the fatal explosion or he had agreed in advance to basically stall and commit suicide if caught. This also seemed unlikely based on Brian's behavior after he was confronted by law enforcement And he wouldn't have needed an elaborate plan of instructions to rob the bank and then commit suicide so if if this whole bomb thing was just somebody with mental illness or a guy that was suicidal in the first place says oh yeah I'll, i'll you guys can strap a bomb to my neck and i'll go in and rob this bank and if the police catch me oh well i'm gonna die if that's your whole plan and and the the death part of it is just a way to make sure that the the guy robbing the bank can't point the finger at other people, then you don't need this whole elaborate scavenger hunt part of this entire plan because if your guy dies after robbing the bank, it's actually less likely people are going to be looking other directions at that point because they're the police at that point would just have to either assume one of the two theories. He was taken hostage, made to rob this bank, but they have no way to figure out what this next step in the plans were or that it was one that he worked alone and then ended up dying so this complicated set of instructions doesn't really fit this idea that this guy is went along with the plan willingly and as part of that plan was willing to get killed and he's also was pleading for his life at you know with the police officers it wasn't like he just sat there quietly and didn't answer their questions he was desperately asking for them to remove the bomb and for somebody to help him he was doing things you wouldn't expect somebody who agreed to some type of diehard plan to rob this bank so investigators are down to two of the most viable options and this was that brian brian was either in on the plan to some degree but eventually got in over his head or the other option is that he was a completely innocent victim and 20 years later this is still debated by law enforcement and brian's family i won't dive into either theory just yet first i'll explore the known facts surrounding the planning of the crime and what happened after so the investigators knew that either way brian needed to have the bomb put on him at some point shortly before the robbery the case is called the pizza delivery bank job because on the afternoon of the robbery before the crime, Brian was working his normal job as a pizza delivery driver for Mama Mia's Pizzeria located in Erie, Pennsylvania, and he had been working at the location for 10 years. At 1.30pm that day, the pizzeria received a call for a pizza delivery for two pizzas to 8631 Peach Street, an address roughly two miles from the pizzeria. Investigators would later trace this call to a payphone from a nearby gas station. The owner had been the one to answer the phone, but he had a hard time understanding the caller, so he passed the phone to Brian, who took down the order and delivery location. After the pizzas were made, Brian headed to the address, which turned out to be a radio transmission tower at the end of a dirt road. It was at this point that the debate begins. Law enforcement Law enforcement officials would later claim that this was part of a plan concocted by Brian and his co-conspirators. He would make this pizza delivery and be taken hostage as part of a plan where he could pretend to be a victim if or when he got caught. Law enforcement later states that they believe that during the planning phase, Brian was under the impression that the bomb was supposed to be fake. But upon arriving at the tower, a real bomb was placed around his neck and at that point he became an unwilling participant of the crime but it was too late for Brian. His family would claim he was never a participant in the crime and showed up to do the pizza delivery with no prior knowledge of the crime and was a completely innocent victim. Brian's past is well, complicated to say the least. According to officials, Brian would later be identified by other members of the plot as a participant in the planning of the robbery. It was said that on two different occasions, Brian met with the other suspects to plan the robbery and even met with them the day before the robbery. According to law enforcement reports, both of the pizzeria's drivers were in on the plan to rob the bank, but they weren't aware of all the aspects of the plan. It was later revealed that Brian had been recruited by his sex worker, quote unquote girlfriend, who knew that Brian had a drug debt and was also likely the father of her unborn child. Desperate for money, Brian was introduced to an unsavory group of characters that saw Brian as the perfect pawn in their plan to obtain $250,000 in a bank robbery. They promised Brian a cut of the money, and all he had to do was wear a fake bomb around his neck, obtain the money, and deliver it. If he got caught, he could just claim to be the victim of a hostage situation. Brian's family, as I said before, would contend that he was only aware of the plan and never volunteered to be a part of the actual robbery and would never have gone along with the plan willingly. While that is open to debate, the rest of the suspects involvement is pretty well known at this point. And although we haven't gotten to this part in the investigation where the investigators have identified the people involved, I think it's best to break down the major players in this case before we get too deep into the investigation, otherwise things can get confusing very quickly. And this was a really difficult case to kind of map out how I was going to cover it, because if you start in the very beginning with the entire plan, as law enforcement says it now, and then go through the bank robbery and the the stuff afterwards, it doesn't really flow, because there's going to be a lot of finger pointing back and forth as a part of the investigation. So I wanted to get through the crime. There's a lot of people involved in this, but I'm going to focus mainly on the major players, and we're going to cover that for the rest of this episode, and then in tomorrow's episode, we'll go through how investigators were able to kind of chip away at this plot over the years until they had a pretty good picture based on, it's there's a lot of inmate testimony, uh, cellmates of some of these convicted people. Uh, There's phone calls, recorded phone calls from the jail, and then there's interviews where people confess to their involvement uh, as as we go through. So again, tomorrow's going to go through all that because there's a lot of years and years of investigation that arrived at all this stuff, but I wanted to get the crime and the players covered in this episode. Uh, just so we have, before we get into the investigation, everybody's got an understanding of what happened and who's involved. And the mastermind behind the entire plan was a particularly vile woman named Marjorie Eleanor Deal Armstrong. But for simplicity, what well, we refer to her as Marge. She had been an exemplary student in the early 60s, gaining a master's degree before drugs and mental health took their toll on her. A series of bad choices and bad relationships resulted in a bad situation between her and a man in the early 1980s, a man that she would shoot dead in 1984. Marge fired six shots into her boyfriend as he sat on a couch, but was found not guilty by reason of self-defense as she claimed he was abusive towards her and she had to kill him before he beat her to death. Two more of her lovers would die in the years that followed. One hung himself and the other died after falling and hitting his head on a coffee table. And this is something we see with some of these people, we haven't covered, and I will at some point. Uh, the woman I can't think of her name, but she was basically she was a black widow. She would marry husbands, kill them off for their life insurance uh, through poisoning or some of these accidents. It's believed that she even did or tried to drown one of her sons. Uh, not a hundred percent sure on on that case, but like I said, I'll cover it at some point. But we. We often cover these people that, over the course of 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of people close to them die under suspicious circumstances. And sometimes it's because they move, and again, this is before, there's a lot of great communication between law enforcement agencies, uh, more readily available information on the internet, whatever it might be. So these people would often get away with killing someone, and then they'd move to another location and then another suspicious death would occur and then they moved to another location and another suspicious death would occur so she's got three significant others that die and now while the hanging one I guess could very well be an actual suicide this self-defense shooting the guy in the chest and there's a good chance he was abusive towards her but as we're gonna see, she tends to throw people under the bus to save herself quite a bit. So it's also possible that she just got sick of him and 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 killed him, and it could be the same thing with the guy that died after falling and hitting his head on a coffee table. Now, Marge had a fishing buddy named Kenneth Barnes. Kenneth was friends with Brian's girlfriend, Jessica, and it was that connection that involved Brian to some degree with this plan. So, again brian has this sex worker we're calling it his girlfriend apparently he paid for her services a couple times a month and but this went on for a long time so they were seen together a lot Um, i think brian kind of considered her his girlfriend she's a sex worker so she's making money by sleeping with a lot of different guys so i'm pretty sure she probably didn't refer to Brian as her boyfriend, but Brian was considered a pretty nice guy. And he, as far as I could tell, based on other research, he wasn't abusive. He wasn't, you know, he, he was just trying to live his life. And so he's got this woman in his life that obviously he has feelings for. He, he wants to be with her and she sees him more again as as a client and as as a pawn and so she she actually kenneth barnes is a client of hers so she knows kenneth she knows brian when she hears from kenneth and eventually that's how she meets marge that they're looking for a guy to do this bank robbery somebody that might need some easy cash that could be manipulated rather easily she's going to suggest brian to the group so Brian's then going to get involved with some of these other guys. And Marge also had an ex fiance one that was somehow still alive, named William Rothstein. And this guy was like 6'6", and probably 70, 280 pounds. He was like a giant um, guy. So that's probably how he was still alive, uh, was that uh, she didn't dare try to kill him because he's one of those guys that If you don't do it right the first time uh, you're probably dead situation but she's still friends with this guy and William was a handyman and a part-time shop teacher and possessed the technical skills to craft the bomb and the bomb collar that would be used during the robbery and William had his own past he had been implicated in a 1977 homicide as the person who provided the handgun used during the murder and then assisted in getting rid of the weapon but he was granted immunity for testifying against the shooter and avoided any jail time. Another co-conspirator was the only other pizza delivery at Mama Mia's Pizzeria. Robert Panetti was found dead in his apartment three days after the robbery, and he had suffered a drug overdose, and officials would later say they believed Robert was part of the plot as well, and had been paid for his silence with drugs that were laced with a fatal amount of fentanyl, ensuring he was silenced forever. And there's not a whole lot more about Robert's death. And it was really interesting because so this little pizzeria has got two delivery drivers, Brian and Robert. They both have some past. They've got substance abuse issues, but they, they know the area. They can deliver their pizzas. That's their job. And it was really interesting because... Robert dies three days after this robbery. So within three days, both delivery drivers from a pizzeria in which a delivery was made that resulted in a bank robbery with the robber ending up dead from this bomb explosion. And when the other driver dies three days later of a drug overdose, it's ruled as as just that, an accidental death from a drug overdose. and. To me, you know, the connection is too strong to, to look away because whether or not you believe Brian is involved at this point, they're still trying to figure that out. You have to start to think that maybe both delivery drivers at least knew something. And that's the reason they're both dead at this point, that the. Delivery of the pizza was part of the plan. Both drivers that could have delivered the pizza are now dead so that they can't talk about the plan. And yet this death with the other pizza driver is just deemed an accident and kind of swept under the rug, at least as far as I could tell from, from the sources that I read. Now, initially, investigators knew nothing about the planning of this heist. They had Brian's body, the instructions, the phone call for the pizza delivery, and Brian's claim that three black men forced him to rob the bank after putting the bomb collar on him. Investigators were searching for suspects, and all they had to go on was the notes they found in Brian's car that told him the steps he needed to take to remove the bomb. Investigators looked at the notes and realized Brian continued to follow the instructions on the notes he was given at the radio tower during his ordeal. After robbing the bank, he was told to drive to a nearby McDonald's, and near the drive-through sign by the entrance, in the parking lot was a flower bed. In that flower bed was a rock with a note taped to it. Brian drove to the location and found the rock and the note. The note was marked number one and contained instructions for Brian to leave McDonald's and head to eyeglass world. There was an orange tape on the bomb that he was supposed to remove and place onto a fire hydrant to signal that he had the money. He was then supposed to drive to exit 180 on a nearby highway and stop near a traffic light warning sign. From there, he had to walk across some grass and into the woods and he would find a container with orange tape and more instructions. But Brian was stopped by troopers between McDonald's and eyeglass world and would never make it to this destination. 55 minutes after somebody wound the timer and three minutes before the bomb squad arrived, the bomb detonated, ending his life. So this is what investigators you know, have going before they're going to really start to narrow in on, on some suspects. And that's not even going to happen until they get word of another crime that this group is involved in. So initially, as they left here, there was a bunch of different thoughts was this it was even thought this was too similar to something from say like a video game like grand theft auto where they thought this could have been the work of like some high school kids that were messing around and and found this pizza delivery guy and made up this big intricate scavenger hunt in order for them to rob a bank because it just isn't something you see normally it's a singular crime the suspect commits the crime takes the money goes to some drop location drops off the money or hides out or whatever it might be and then it's just a the process of trying to identify the the driver which is actually gonna be easy in this case we'll talk about it uh, in the next episode but it just seems absolutely strange to police that they've got this this complicated series and then the instructions themselves because he had to drive to this McDonald's is located right around the corner from this bank and get out and look for this rock and pick up the rock and read this note about what he needed to do next. He has to then drive back towards the bank and put this tape around a fire hydrant right by the bank. It's basically setting him up to get caught because the police are going to be in the area He's got this big bomb strapped around him. He's not able to hide in public very well. So again, police have to be confused why this is part of the plan. Why would it almost seem like the people wanted Brian to get caught? And again, we'll get into an in investigation. We'll get into what the actual plan was and how things kind of went sideways for, for the entire crew, but obviously mainly for Brian. So we'll stop here for the day. Tomorrow we will get what investigators learned about the plan via interviewing the suspects, the resulting criminal trials and convictions, as well as some related cases and pop culture references. So thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.